You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Clash of Minds, Episode 3, with Walter Feit. Now, in the first part of this lecture, we looked at righteousness by faith. We looked at the Adventist view. We looked at the early reformers' view. And we looked at the Bible. And we all came to the conclusion, I believe, that they were all in harmony with each other. Now we're going to look at the Catholic view. And then we'll compare it with the Bible and with the Adventist view. And then we'll make some conclusions. And then we'll look at the joint view and see where that brings us. Now, this is the Catholic Encyclopedia, and it says, instead of seeking a solution in legal figures, remember, we spoke about the legality of the plan of salvation, Christ taking upon himself the sin, and then paying the price for those sins, and then imputing and imparting his righteousness, and that the imputation was a legal framework. So Catholicism says, no, instead of seeking a solution in legal figures, some of the great Greek fathers were content to dwell on the fundamental fact of the divine incarnation. By the union of the eternal word with the nature of man, all mankind was lifted up and, so to say, deified. Now, the Catholic Encyclopedia tells us that Christ became man so that we might become God. Uh, that is very reminiscent, in fact, it's exactly what the serpent said in the Garden of Eden. He was made man, says St. Antanasius, that we might be made gods. His flesh was saved and made free, the first of all being made the body of the word, then we being concorporeal therewith are saved by the same, and again, for the presence of the Savior in the flesh was the price of death and the saving of the whole creation, and they quote Adelphium. And like manner, in like manner, St. Gregory of Nazianzus proved, proves the integrity of the sacred humanity by the argument that that which was not assumed is not healed, but that which is united to God is saved. Okay. So this is a very interesting doctrine that we have here and we can see that the Greek fathers are the ones who are involved in this. Now in Catholic thinking it's not the Bible that's the norm, it has to be interpreted in the framework of the fathers. Now what happens when all the fathers are in disharmony with one another? Then you get uh, a very strange phenomenon where you harmonize disharmony because there's no other way of doing it. So everything is part of, of a whole that eventually is contradictory, but by the very essence of its contradiction becomes non-contradictory, if that makes any sense whatsoever to any human being on the planet. So let's have a look at it. And they quote here in Latin, This speculation of the Greek fathers undoubtedly contains a profound truth which is sometimes forgotten by later authors who are more intent on framing juridical theories 
of ransom and satisfaction. A juridical theory. There's a law. And the law has been transgressed. The law requires retribution, consequence. God takes the consequence upon himself. That's the legal aspect. That's where we came from. Now, they are disputing these juridical theories, as they call them. But it is not only in the connection with the theory of ransom that we meet with the notion of rights on the part of Satan. Some of the fathers set the matter in a different aspect. Fallen man, it was said, was justly under the dominion of the devil in punishment for sin. But when Satan brought suffering and death on the sinless Savior, he abused his power and exceeded his rights. This is very strange. So that he was now justly deprived of his dominion over his captives. So Satan was in control, but then he abused his power by attacking Jesus Christ. This explanation is found especially in the Sermon of St. Leo and the morals of St. Gregory the Great. Closely allied to this explanation is the singular mousetrap metaphor of St. Augustine. In this daring figure of speech, the cross is regarded as the trap in which the bait is set and the enemy is caught. The Redeemer came and the deceiver was overcome. What did our Redeemer do to our captor? In payment for us, he set the trap, his cross, with his blood for bait. He, Satan, could indeed shed that blood, but he deserves not to drink it. By shedding the blood of one who was not his debtor, he was forced to release his debtors. To atone is to give satisfaction or to make amends for an offense or an injury. Abelard, there's another one, was unable to accept Anselm's view that an equivalent satisfaction for sin was necessary and that this debt could only be paid by the death of the divine Redeemer. He insists that God could have pardoned us without requiring satisfaction. Is that possible? Doesn't the Bible say without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins? And in his view, the reason for the incarnation and the death of Christ was purely the love of God. So God so loved us that he sent his son, and the son lived the perfect life, and eventually lived it to the point where he was killed. Not died for us, he was killed. And this does makes the satisfaction. Not the fact that he died, but the perfect life in itself was quite... Sufficient to do it. By no other means could men be so effectually turned from sin and moved to the love of God. Abelard's teaching on this point, as on others, was vehemently attacked by St. Bernard. Do you realize by now that the Greek fathers and the fathers of the church do not agree with each other at all? But it should be borne in mind that some of the arguments urged in condemnation of Abelard could affect the position of St. Anselm. Also, not to speak of later Catholic theology, St. Thomas and the other medieval masters agree with Abelard in rejecting the notion that this full satisfaction for sin was absolutely necessary. So, no satisfaction for sin, you don't need to, Jesus didn't have died. At the most, they are willing to admit a hypothetical or conditional necessity for the redemption by the death of Christ, the restoration of fallen man was a work of God's free mercy and benevolence.
And even on the hypothesis that the loss was to be repaired, this might have been brought about in many and various ways. There are many ways in which God could have saved you. He didn't have died. The sin might have been remitted freely. Just forgive it. Didn't he do that for Mary, according to them? Hmm? Wasn't Mary born immaculate? She was born without sin or the consequences of sin by a divine decree. Is that possible when the Bible says without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sin? So if God could have done it for Mary, why did he not do it for all of us? Could have saved himself a lot of trouble, couldn't he? And a lot of pain. Why did he do it? Just declare everyone righteous, that's it, finish, divine decree. So without any satisfaction at all, or some lesser satisfaction, however imperfect in itself, might have been accepted as sufficient. But on the hypothesis that God has chosen to restore mankind and at the same time to require full satisfaction as a condition of pardon and deliverance, nothing less than the atonement made by one who was God as well as man could suffice as satisfaction for the offense against the divine majesty. So some of it seems to overlap with what Protestantism says. A lot of it is totally contrary to what the Bible and Protestantism says. And then they make this amazing statement. On looking back at the various theories noticed so far, it will be seen that they are not, for the most part, mutually exclusive, but may be combined and harmonized. Uh, that takes quite some brain-wrenching to achieve. So let's sum up. Here's another Catholic website. And it says, let's look at the atonement. This is the Reformed view. God the Father, wrath, cross. Catholic view. God the Father, self-sacrificial love, cross. He needn't have died. He could have done it another way. But he took it all the way. But it wasn't necessary. The blood was not necessary. They continue, the reformed conception of the atonement is that in Christ's passion and death, God the Father poured out all of his wrath for the sins of the elect on Christ the Son. Now listen how they write it. In Christ's passion and death, Christ bore the punishment of the Father's wrath that the elect deserved for their sins. In the Reformed conception, this is what it means to bear the curse, to bear the Father's wrath for sin. In the Reformed thought, at Christ's passion and death, God the Father transferred all the sins, past, present and future, now listen carefully, of all the elect unto his Son. Then God the Father hated, cursed and damned his Son. who was evil in the Father's sight on account of all the sins of the elect being concentrated on the Son. And Sproul says that here, in doing so, God the Father punished Christ for all the sins of the elect of all time. Excuse me, but that is diseased. Because it totally ignores the fact that Jesus Christ said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God the Father now hated the Son. 
He hated the sin. But he didn't hate the son. And God the Father and, and God the Son collectively made the decision to ransom man and took upon themselves in the form of humanity this sin that is ours and died for it. He didn't, he didn't hate the son. The Bible says he loved the world and he gave his beloved son. So this is a total confusion. And then they tried to distort the Reformed theology by continuing. Because the sins of the elect are now paid for through Christ's having already been punished for them, the elect can never be punished for any sin they might ever commit. Because every sin they might ever commit has already been punished. For that reason, Reformed theology is required to maintain that Christ died only for the elect. Is that true? Nothing they say here is true. Otherwise, if Christ died for everyone, this would entail universal salvation, since it would entail that all the sins of all the people have already been punished and therefore cannot be punished again. The Catholic conception of Christ's passion and atonement. So first of all, they totally distort Protestant theology. They trash it in their, excuse me, pathetic way. And then they try to uplift their theology as in, in contrast. And they say the Catholic conception of Christ's passion and atonement is that Christ offers himself up in self-sacrificial love to the Father, obedient even unto death, for the sins of all men. In his human will, he offered to God a sacrifice of love that was more pleasing to the Father than the combined sins of all men of all time are displeasing to him, and thus made satisfaction for our sins. All right, let us, let us unpack that. Two kids, two children. Let's call the one Tom, and we'll call the other one, whatever, Johnny. And Tom is naughty, and Johnny is good and sweet and obedient. And uh, Tom decides he's going to modify his father's new car, scratches the paintwork from top to bottom, takes his baseball bat, smashes in the windscreen and the front headlights, and goes berserk on his father's car. But little Johnny cuts the lawn, puts nice flowers into a vase and puts it next to his mother's bed. And the father comes home, and he sees that little Johnny was so good that he cut the lawn and showed his love by putting flowers in the vase and decides that Tom can be now be forgiven because Johnny was so sweet and good. Does that, does that make any sense whatsoever? Is there any injustice in that system? It's a ludicrous theology. Now, we don't only want to quote one source and people say, all right, but that's a distorted view of Catholicism. So here are some other sources that reflect the Catholic view. Alan Jones, the Reverend of Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, wrote a book called Reimagining Christianity. And in this book he states, the church's fixation on the death of Jesus as the universal saving act must end. In the place of the cross must be reimagined the Christian faith. Why? 
because of the cult of suffering and the vindictive God behind it. So God is vindictive because he hates Jesus and he kills Jesus because of our sins so that we can be forgiven. All right, so we don't want the atonement anymore. Let's get rid of that theology. Of the atonement, John also says, Jesus' sacrifice was to appease an angry God. Penal substitution was the name of this vile doctrine. In 2008, Oprah and the media is controlled also by the same powers that be. And this is the theology that is being aired to the masses, even by the media. So she presented The Course in Miracles, which, by the way, is a channeled work. And daily on her Oprah and Friends online radio network, this is what she had Jesus come and say through this channeled information about the atonement. This is Jesus, in inverted commas, speaking. Do not make the pathetic error of clinging to the old rugged cross. The only message of the crucifixion is that you can overcome the cross. Until then, you are free to crucify yourself as often as you choose. This is not the gospel I intended to offer you. The journey to cross to the cross should be the last useless journey. If you can accept it as your own last useless journey, you are also free to join my resurrection. Until you do so, your life is indeed wasted. The song of Easter is the glad refrain of the Son of God was never crucified. The very tone tells me that it comes from the pits of hell and not from above. All right, is this really possible? Richard Leonard is a Sydney-based Jesuit priest, here's another quote, who also, who's also the director of the Australian Catholic Film Office, and he says on the atonement, so now we have the Jesuit view, which is interesting because the present papacy is controlled completely by the Jesuits. Most of the radio interview titled what to say to suffering and death was interesting, but I found Richard's comments on the atonement particularly so. In the top ten hymns for Christians right throughout the world, I think, this is the Jesuit speaking, how great their art gets into the top five almost every time. And indeed, I love how great their art. We sang it at Mass only just recently, and I gave it out with great gusto, but I can't sing verse 3. I wander through glades in verse 1 and I shout with acclamation in verse 5, but verse 3 says, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. The Jesuit refuses to sing it. Well, I can scarce take it in too because I don't believe that sort of theology. It comes in at a very particular moment in Catholic theology called the atonement theory from the 11th century and it is based on Paul's letter to the Romans. So it's got some New Testament roots. But when you unpack those parts in the New Testament, they are used in a particular way that I think have lost their meaning now. About buying back slaves and the whole process of redemption. And then it gets picked up about atonement. And then the Protestant reformers really perfect it. 
in what's called satisfaction theology. That's the only way for God to get happy with the world, was the perfect son to make the perfect sacrifice so God's anger would be satisfied. There's another way that you can get into why Jesus died, and that is why was Jesus killed. You know how subtle that is? And I say in the book that maybe it's just more helpful now to say that Jesus didn't come primarily to die, he came to live. And as a result of the way he lived, he threatened the religious, political, and social leaders of his day. So we are socializing the gospel. They put him to death, and that God's response to Good Friday was not to see his only beloved son crucified in a capital punishment death, but was in fact then to raise him from the dead. So God's response to Good Friday is Easter Sunday, which is in fact the cornerstone of Christian theology. So I love how great they are. I just shut up when I get to verse 3. I know it's a very venerable piece of theology, but for instance, the Orthodox Christians, they have not attended to go down this atonement satisfaction way. They tend to be much stronger about what I've just outlined, that Jesus came to live. You see, when the Christians go to Holy Week, to Good Friday, I think we ask the wrong question. We ask, why did Jesus die? I think it's the wrong question. I think the question is, why was Jesus killed? And that completely changes Holy Week. So Jesus was murdered. Didn't die for you. There's no atonement. And Paul says so, but let's forget about Paul. Isn't that what he's saying? Let's forget about Paul. Right, let's think a little bit further. Roman Catholicism has some very interesting thoughts. And one of the thoughts is that if you are a sinner and Christ has forgiven you your sin, then justice has not yet taken place. So what about the punishment for the sin? You've been forgiven, but what about the punishment that is due to the sin? Well, that must still come. We still need the punishment. So we'll, we'll invent the punishment. The punishment comes in a place called purgatory. And in purgatory, you suffer the punishment for forgiven sins. Do you get that? So my wife and I have an argument on some silly issue or whatever, and I have wronged her, and uh, eventually I apologize to her, and she forgives me. Then she must beat me up because I haven't yet been punished. Does that make any sense? In a legal sense? No. But now it gets even more interesting. Because who is the one who controls the punishment? Who is the one who, who dishes out the punishment? God dishes out the punishment. And who is the one who can alleviate the punishment? The Pope. The Pope. He can alleviate the punishment. For what? For sins that are already forgiven. 
And so he alleviates them through an indulgence. So let's unpack this theology because it's all wrapped up in this atonement idea that you find in Catholicism that Jesus didn't have to die. He just lived the perfect life and his perfect life was so great that all the wickedness of all the ages can just be forgiven. So a plenary indulgence was issued by the popes and the latest popes issued the greatest indulgences of all. 24 hours of forgiveness. This is wonderful stuff. Vatican City, according to the decree made public and signed by Cardinal so-and-so, so-and-so and Bishop so-and-so and whatever, uh, in 2012 till the end of 24 November, such and such, you may have a plenary indulgence. Wonderful. Indulgences granted by Pope Francis for World Youth Day. Pope Francis has granted an indulgence to all who participate on the 28th World Youth Day celebrations, which will be held in Rio de Janeiro this month. The decree was signed by Cardinal Manuel so-and-so, along with Bishop so-and-so. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, an indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven. This is their web pages. I'm not making this up. With a faithful Christian who is fully disposed, gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, through the action of the church, which as the minister of redemption, minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of satisfaction of Christ and the saints. I want you to understand this so that you can understand where we're going. As part of the greater effort to use social media to connect with the Catholic worldwide, the Pope will start relieving punishment for your sins via social media. According to the Vatican Sacred Apostolic Penitentiary publication, Pope Francis will give a plenary indulgence, which is a special act that is said to reduce time in purgatory, to his Twitter followers. The Pope typically offers indulgences to those who see him in person, but for the first time this year, it will be extend to virtual visits too. This is absolutely amazing. To get an indulgence and time off from temporal punishment, you have to have... A, a cell phone and you must be able to be connected to the internet and you must be able to Twitter the Pope's activities. I thought he was the Pope for the poor. Why didn't he give the indulgence to everyone who couldn't afford a cell phone? Or a cell phone contract? Why does he give it only to those who can Twitter him along? This is the most ludicrous, ridiculous thing that I've ever heard in my life. Now, I know this sounds a little bit sarcastic, but uh, I don't think it warrants very th another approach here. So Vatican's offer time of purgatory to followers of the Pope Francis tweets. I'm giving more than one source so that people don't think we're you know, making all of this stuff up. Now, what is this 
the source that he takes this power from. Let's look at that. Indulgences granted by Pope Francis for World Youth Day. Pope Francis has granted an indulgence to all who participate on the 28th World Youth Day celebrations, which will be held in Rio. The decree was signed by so-and-so. It's the same thing. It's a remission of sin, of temporal punishments due to sins already forgiven, etc. And uh, it comes from the authority, the treasury of the satisfaction of Christ and the saints. So what is this treasury? Let's ask them. This is Catholics answering this question. The treasure of, treasury of merit consists of the superabundant merits of Christ, as well as the merits of the saints. The treasury of merit is one because of the communion of saints in the body, Christ being the head. The Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches the following about the treasury of merit. We also call these spiritual goods of the communion of the saints the church's treasury, which is not the sum total of the material goods which have accumulated during the course of centuries. On the contrary, the treasury of the church is the infinite value which can never be exhausted, which Christ's merits have before God. They were offered so that the whole of mankind could be set free from sin and attain communion with the Father. And there you have the theology, and you must note the theology carefully. It is the merit of his good works which made it possible for us to be redeemed. Not his blood. It wasn't necessary for him to die. So it was the merits of his good works. In Christ, the Redeemer himself, the satisfactions and merits of his redemption exist and find their efficacy. This treasury includes as well the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Aha! So the treasury does not only include the works of Christ, it's also the works of Mary. Now how, how big are the works of Mary? They are truly immense, unfathomable, and even pristine in their value before God. In the treasury too are the prayers and good works of all the saints. All those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord and by His grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission in the unity of the mystical body. And there's, a, there's a flaw hidden in that, and I wonder whether you've perceived it. It says, by His grace have made their lives holy. Who's made their lives holy? They have. Who really makes your life holy? He has. You see there's a shift here? The holiness is actually transferred to the individual who in Catholic theology becomes holy. So it's not Christ who imputes and imparts the holiness. He actually makes them holy beings. Merit cannot be transformed, but meritorious acts can make satisfaction for another. This gets very strange. By giving to God a gift of greater value than that which was taken by sin. This is how Christ's own actions in his passion and death made satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And then we discussed that already. But it is also the way the meritorious acts of the saints can make satisfaction for others, debt of temporal punishment. St. Thomas writes, all the saints intended that whatever, 
whatever they did or suffered for God's sake should be profitable, not only to themselves, but to the whole church. Okay, so this is how the merit is transferred. I have no merit. I'm the little bad boy who smashed my, car's, my father's car. But fortunately, my little brother has lots of merit. So I can transfer the merit from him to me, or from a saint, or from Mary. And well, let's throw Jesus in there as well. Christ gave the power of keys to St. Peter, by which the magisterium of the church, that's the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church, the papacy and the bishops, as Christ's authorized representatives in persona Christi, can forgive sins by the merit and satisfaction of Christ's passion through the sacrament of penance. Pope Clement wrote, Upon the altar of the cross, Christ shed of his blood not merely a drop, though this would have sufficed by reason of the union with the word to redeem the whole human race, but a copious torrent, where thereby laying up an infinite treasure for mankind. This treasure he neither wrapped up in a napkin nor hid in a field, but entrusted to the blessed Peter. Fascinating. The key bearer and his successor, that they might, for just and reasonable causes, distribute it to the faithful in full or partial remission of the temporal punishment due to sin. So who decides who gets remission of punishment? The Pope. You better get yourself a cell phone and start twittering. And everybody else, it's not a just enough cause. The church, by the authorization of Christ and through the communion of saints, can draw from the one treasury of merit and satisfaction to reduce or remove the death of, debt of temporal punishment for anyone united to the body through sanctifying grace. And that is just what an indulgence is. Who is the one who is the merciful one here? The Pope. He's the merciful one. And who's the one who brings the punishment upon you? God. So the Pope is more merciful than Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose skills have already been forgiven. This is incredible. Through the action of the church, which is the minister of redemption dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfaction of Christ and the saints. Okay. Who decides who's a saint? The church. So, it's official. John Paul II and John XXIII to be canonized. Why those two? Blessed Pope John XXIII and John Paul II will be canonized April 27, 2014. So that's taken place. In a statement released, the Vatican said that Pope Francis decreed that blessed John XXIII and John Paul II will be enrolled among the saints on April 27, the second Sunday of Easter of the Divine Mercy. The Vatican said the Holy Father announced his decision at 10 a.m. and etc., 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 now why? Well, if they have the power to remit sin, 
then they have the power to determine who is a saint, and then they can take the, 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 the treasury of that saint and apply it, if they wish, to dispense merit. Not only that, if the church has the power to make all of these decisions based on the merits and based on their theology, recently, and I know that you are all aware of it, there was this meeting with the evangelicals and Tony Palmer, and I don't want to play the whole piece, I just want to go and start from about the 23rd minute, and we want to just look at the last little section. And I need you to at least understand a little bit of the, the history behind this, because we are living in an incredibly important generation. I believe that God has brought me here to this year's Ministers' Conference in the spirit of Elijah. Let me explain. If you look carefully, the spirit of Elijah was on John the Baptist to turn the hearts of the sons to the fathers and to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons to prepare the way for the Lord. And we know that prophecy always has a double fulfillment. And we know that Elijah will come before the second coming as well. And I've understood that the spirit of Elijah is the spirit of reconciliation. To return hearts to each other. This is very important. We know that the first thousand years there was one church. It was called the Catholic Church. And the word Catholic means universal. It doesn't mean Roman. Catholic means, if you're born again, raise your hand if you're born again. You're a Catholic. <laughs> Take back, redeem what belongs to you. We are Catholics. And then there was the split at the end of the first millennium. We had the Orthodox, East and West, two churches. Then 500 years later, we have Luther and his protest. Three churches in 1,500 years. Three denominations, not three churches. And then, from Luther's protest onwards, 33,000 new denominations. I've come to understand that diversity is divine. It's division that's diabolic. It's true what you were saying about the glory. I agree with you, of course, it's true. The glory that the Father had, he gave to Jesus. The glory was the presence of God. What is the charismatic renewal? It's when we experience the presence of God. And he said, and I give them the glory, pragmatic reason, so that they may be one. It's the glory that glues us together, not the doctrines. It's the glory. If you accept that Christ is living in me and the presence of God is in me and the presence of God is in you, that's all we need. Because God will sort out all our doctrines when we get upstairs. Therefore, Christian unity is the basis of our credibility because Jesus said until day one, they will not believe. The world will not believe, as they should, until we are one. Division destroys our credibility. It is fear that keeps us separated because fear is false evidence appearing real. It's an acronym. F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. 
because most of your fear is based on propaganda. Now, why is it historic? Because in 1999, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Lutheran Church signed an agreement that brought an end to the protest. Luther believed that we were saved by grace through faith alone. Amen. But that's not it. The Catholic Church believed that we were saved by works. And that was the protest. In 1999, they wrote this together. Because in the Protestant church, we had a lot of cheap salvations. People were getting born again, but no fruit whatsoever. And because we didn't even look for fruit, it wasn't the issue. Because it wasn't necessary for salvation. And no, it's not. But it's a good judge if you are saved. So what these two churches did, they put the two definitions together. Listen to it. I'm reading verbatim from the Catholic Vatican website. Justification means that Christ himself is our righteousness, in which we share through the Holy Spirit in accord with the will of the Father. Together we Catholics and Protestants, Lutherans, believe and confess that by grace, alone, in faith, in Christ's saving works, and not because of any merit on our part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit who renews our hearts while equipping and calling us to good works. This brought an end to the protest of Luther. Brothers and sisters, Luther's protest is over. Is yours. Good. Doctrines are not important. God will sort out the doctrines when we get upstairs. Put the doctrines aside. Then he read the joint declaration. After what we've discussed already, did you pick up a flaw? How were we justified? Through the blood or through the good works of Christ? Through his merit, his good works. So here's a serious, serious issue already. But let us look at it in some detail because it's important. Because Christianity is at a crossroads. And Christianity is about to sell its birthright for a pot of potash. The Roman Catholic Lutheran Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification is a denial of the Gospel and the righteousness of Christ. And the man I'm quoting here is not an Adventist. He's an ex-Roman Catholic priest, Richard M. Bennett. And I thought I would quote him because he's very acquainted with Catholic doctrine, of course, being a Catholic priest, and he has turned his back on it for very specific reasons. So it's good to look at his reasoning and see where it leads us. So he spent 21 years as a Roman Catholic priest in Trinidad. He formally left the Roman Catholic Church and its priesthood. His website is the Berean Beacon at etc. J.D., the Joint Declaration. 
is the result of 30 years of Lutheran-Roman Catholic dialogue. This fact alone might dissuade many from daring to challenge it. In addition to the first-rate showmanship with which J.D. has been presented, it appears that there is neither grub nor gnat that has not been strained out of this cleverly worded document and addenda. There are presuppositions upheld in J.D. itself which are not stated as such in the official common statement. Some of these presuppositions totally negate biblical justification, as for example the idea that justification is by means of the sacrament of baptism. Such a tradition of men is accepted by both parties to the agreement, which in J.D. states, we confess together that in baptism, the Holy Spirit unites one with Christ, justifies and truly renews the person. This heresy is in line with the teaching of the Council of Trent. Canon 8. If any, ma if any shall say that by the said sacrament of the new law, grace is not conferred from the work which has been worked, but that faith alone in the divine promise suffices to obtain grace, let him be an anathema. You see, Catholic theology says that grace is transferred to you. Christ's work, his merit, is transferred to you. So you become God. You become a meritorious being. The Bible says it is imputed, which is a judicial act, and it is imparted, which is Christ working within you. It always remains with Christ. The present-day dogma of the Roman Catholic Church upholds this teaching of the Council of Trent and declares that it is infallible. From the sixth session of the Council of Trent, the following curses will still stand, and J.D. does not contradict them. Canon 9 says, If anyone shall say that by faith alone the sinner is justified, so as to understand that nothing else is required to cooperate in the attainment of the grace of justification, and that it is in no way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be an anathema. And Canon 11 says, If anyone shall say that men are just justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ, or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity, which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and remains in them, or even that the grace by which we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be an anathema. So they totally repudiate Protestant doctrine and biblical doctrine. And then he quotes Romans 9. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. So is Paul also an anathema now? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. The Bible is quite clear. We cannot be saved by our works. We can only be saved by faith in Christ. 
Error always cloaks itself in reasonably sounding phrases and often makes use of the scheme of the evil one to twist the scriptures. JD, the Joint Declaration, is replete with Reformation-like language and scripture quotations. A characteristic vagueness and impreciseness permeates the document. Certain sentences can be read and assented to by a biblical Christian, but when the slant of meaning is examined, each is seen to be the opposite of what they first seem to say. Like when he read this out to that assembly, everybody said, Amen, but they didn't pick up on the error. The conclusions arrived to are similar, and I love this metaphor of his. The conclusions arrived at are similar to the deception of Jacob in Genesis chapter 27. The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. The voice of J.D. is distinctly that of the scriptures. The hands, however, are the hairy hands of Rome. In J.D., imputed righteousness is cleverly sidestepped for the old lie of establishing one's own righteousness. In J.D., the doctrine of extrinsic or imputed righteousness has been wiped out in favor of the Roman Catholic doctrine of inherent righteousness. Do you understand the difference? Clearly, J.D. is an attempt to do away with the biblical gospel, thus the official common statement to reads... We confess together that God forgives sin by grace and at the same time frees human beings from sin's enslaving power. Justification is forgiveness of sins and being made righteous through which God imparts the gift of a new life in Christ. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. Then they quote Romans. We are called children of God and that we are, they quote 1 John 3, 1, we are truly and inwardly renewed by the action of the Holy Spirit, remaining always dependent on his work in us. Now, there's a huge amount of error in that already, but we'll carry on in a moment. So if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. The justified do not remain sinners in this sense. This is what they say. Okay, let's read it again. Justification is the forgiveness of sins and being made righteous. Fascinating. We are truly and inwardly renewed by the action of the Holy Spirit, remaining always dependent on His work in us. Now let's unpack that. This is a convoluted mixture of the doctrines of justification and sanctification. Remember we separated them? Justification is a judicial act of declaring someone righteous and imputing the righteousness of Christ to that person. That's a one-time act. And it has nothing to do with sanctification. Sanctification is the work of a, a lifetime. And also in sanctification, you are not being made righteous. You are allowing Christ to work in with you and you only have a tendency to want to be like him and permit him to work within you. All right. 
Justification nowhere in Scripture ever means inherent righteousness or being made righteous. The believer's justification is not based on a single iota of anything in him. It is based wholly on his standing in Christ. This is biblical. Just like I had nothing to contribute to the creative act in Genesis, so I have nothing to contribute to the recreative act. A dead person cannot contribute anything. Justification is not being made righteous, but J.D. follows such statements as these with numerous scriptural quotations and phrases cloaking its errors in the semblance of truth. In the justifying act of God, he imputes Christ's perfect righteousness to the individual. It is a legal, one-time, finished, irrevocable act which cannot be misconstrued to be a process or an ongoing occurrence such as the term being made righteous will allow. What is proposed in JD as the doctrine of justification is deficient in two essential ways. It neither upholds the perfect standard of God's holiness, nor does it demonstrate the perfect righteousness of Christ in life and death. In the words of the Apostle Paul, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. The Bible is very clear. The Bible emphasizes and declares the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, Romans 1.17. This is not proclaimed nor taught in the official common statement on J.D. Destitute and sinful human beings need the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is what the scriptures clearly says is now manifest. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest. Romans 3.21 And you will recognize this from this talk that Tony Palmer gave. Together we confess by grace alone by faith in Christ's saving work and not because of any merit on our part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit who renews our hearts while equipping and calling us to good works. Did you read that statement? And everybody said, clap, clap, amen. The latter is sanctification, not justification. And there's definitely no blood in it. Because it's the saving work which does it. And this whole last portion has to do with sanctification. So this is a mixture. This is a convoluted mixture. The simple truth of scripture is that God never accepts an individual as such. Rather he is accepted only in the beloved. In the righteousness of the one Jesus Christ. That is in the righteousness of faith. That's biblical. The official statement ratifying J.D. states. Justification takes place. By grace alone, by faith alone, the person is justified apart from works. They quote Romans. Grace creates faith not only when faith begins in a person, but as long as faith lasts. They quote Thomas Aquinas. Aha! So they brought in the fathers. And we saw what confusion the fathers had introduced into the equation in the beginning. 
Now let's unpack that. The use of the phrase justification takes place rather than the biblical concept to whom it shall be imputed is studied deceit because the word justification can be made to imply a process rather than a one-time act of God. Nevertheless, the scriptures continually speak about the outcome of the justifying act as righteousness, not justification. J.D. in the common statement on J.D. use the noun justification and carefully avoid the verb justifies. The Greek word justifies, logizomai, means to count, esteem, impute, number, reason, reckon. It is a verb denoting a one-time action, the repetition of the noun justification in JD and the official common statement on JD conveys the concept of a quality within a person that totally contravenes the scripture. This is brilliant. These people are linguistic experts at deception. Not mentioning imputed righteousness and continually speaking about of justification is seductive sophistry. Thus in the official common statement endorsement of JD, the basis for the gospel is given as within man rather than the perfect righteousness of the God-man, Christ Jesus. Remember we saw there their doctrine that man becomes God because that which is given from that which is received is one and the same and therefore we must be one. This is cancerous cuisine. And then they cite the citing of Aquinas teaches that grace is a quality of the soul. In the treatise on grace he asks the question, is grace a quality of the soul? In the body of his article, he cites Aristotle's physics, saying, motion is the act of the mover on the moved. That's what we just discussed. Then in reply, he states, grace as a quality is said to act upon the soul, not after the manner of an efficient cause, but after the manner of a formal cause, as whiteness makes a thing white and justice just. So who's made just and who's made righteous? Me. Hello? Did you notice that? I'm not being made righteous. I am declared righteous in the righteousness of Christ. It is a gift that always belongs to him. It's never me. I'm the dependent party, not the independent party. The whole idea of grace being moral justice located inside a person rather than the holy God imputing Christ's righteousness to each person whom he places in Christ blatantly contradicts biblical truth. Such teaching is a negation of consistent biblical teaching of positional legal righteousness in Christ alone. So endorsing the teachings of Aquinas, and all such teaching in JD as justification takes place, being made righteous, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit, is quite cleverly teaching inherent righteousness without using the words. Such teaching opposes both the gospel and the righteousness of Christ. On returns to the old lie of Satan, 
that what is inside man makes him right before God, you shall be as gods. In the Vatican II, Concilia and Post-Concilia Doctrines, number 42, Reflections and Suggestions Concerning Ecumenical Dialogue, the Church of Rome carefully lays out the ground rules for her program of ecumenical dialogue amongst Christians. From that document it is clear that the Roman Catholic Church is proceeding to dialogue with Christians by adhering to a special set of rules. Thus they say, dialogue is not an end in itself. It is not just an academic discussion. Rather, the stated purpose of dialogue is that little by little, oh, that's dangerous, as the obstacles to perfect ecclesial communion are overcome, all Christians will be gathered in a common celebration of the Eucharist. John Rogers, the man who took over the work that Tyndall couldn't complete because he was murdered at the stake, decided to die rather than to accept the doctrine of the Eucharist that Christ was literally, transubstantively present in the host. But now we must all forget about the death of the martyrs and become part of this Eucharist celebration. Into that unity of the one and only church, this unity we believe dwells in the Catholic Church as something she can never lose. The little by little may this time be a giant step as it appears in the conclusion to the official common statement of J.D. quoted above. For the Roman Catholic Church, the first basis on which ecumenical dialogue works is not sola scriptura. The scriptures cannot be broken, John 10.35. Rather, it is a community of spiritual goods. This basis is exactly the same as the premise on which the Roman Catholic Church builds her doctrine and which is spelled out in her latest official catechism, paragraph 80. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture then are bound closely together and communicate one with the other, for both of them flowing from the same divine wellspring come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. So let's forget about the doctrine. God will sort it out where? Upstairs. Let's just get the thing on paper. Each partner should seek to expound the doctrine of his own community in a constructive manner, putting aside the tendency to define by opposition. So you say so, and I say so. We don't agree. So let's not compare. You stick to what you want to believe and you stick what you want to believe as long as we sign. Where? Here, on the dotted line. Interesting, the Bible teaches much by means of contrast. The partners will work together towards a constructive synthesis in such a way that every legitimate contribution is made use of in the joint research aimed at the complete assimilation of the revealed datum. The words revealed datum are carefully chosen. For a Bible believer, the term would mean written word. For the Roman Catholic Church, however, the term revealed datum consistently refers to Scripture plus tradition as a first basis. And proceeding from this impure base, the constructive synthesis rules are simply the old line of evolution, truth by synthesis or relative truth. 
Excluded from start to finish is the principle of sola scriptura. To the Roman Catholic Church, who by so exquisite an application of her rules of engagement has thrust through the Lutherans, the words of the Lord speak directly. You are making the word of God of none effect through your tradition which you have delivered. For those who are the Lord's own within the Lutheran churches, the warning of the Lord is clearly given. Hearken unto me now therefore, O you children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her paths, for she has cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. I think the man has a way with words. J.D. has ratified on the official, in the official common statement is indeed outwardly stunning. But the message is dead man's bones in that it attempts to cleverly establish man's own righteousness. The word of the Lord's are indeed appropriate. I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. I believe there are people out there who are blowing the trumpet while we are silent. And we are watching the world uniting and negating Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And if the third angel's message is righteousness by faith in verity, who should be the ones preaching this message? Shouldn't it be we, us? Shouldn't it be us? Here's another interesting book, Not by Faith Alone. And this again was a Roman Catholic who became a Protestant who then again defected and became a Roman Catholic. And then he became an apologist for Roman Catholicism. And uh, Robert A. Singanes, Not by Faith Alone, The Biblical Evidence for the Catholic Doctrine of Justification. Biblical evidence for the Catholic Doctrine. And here is a response to his work and here's another Protestant writer, and he writes in the Journal of the Grace Evangelical Society. So I'm, I'm speaking about stones crying out. Let's see how he talks about this book. He says, Robert Sanginus grew up in a Roman Catholic home as a young man. He converted to the Protestant faith, decided to go into the ministry, attended Westminster Theological Seminary, etc., graduated then and then and for 10 years was a strong proponent of Protestantism and the Reformed theology. Then he converted to Catholicism and is now an apologist for Catholicism. The book opens with a series of endorsements by Roman Catholics, the very first, the most reverend Fabian Bruskevitz, Bishop of Lincoln, who writes in part, Faith implies works. We know that the words we long to hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant, come and share your master's joy, will be spoken to those who have done well. Faith alone is not enough. The Protestant Reformation sowed confusion about the biblical theology of faith and good works, and many today rely on this confusion to defend or excuse a failure to live holy lives of the service of goodness. And then he praises Roberts. Sungenes has systematically addressed the confusion 
and demonstrated that we have what we have always known, namely the sacred scripture and the Catholic deposit of faith, are in complete agreement about justification. I applaud this work and recommend it for all who wish to know how and why the Bible teaches that we are not saved by faith alone. Now who sowed the confusion? Was it the Protestants? Or was it the Catholics who sowed the confusion amongst the Protestants? Martin Luther, when he first studied this issue, was a great proponent of Paul and righteousness by faith. And then he studied the book of James, which tells you that faith without works is dead. And he couldn't reconcile the two, so he called James the pistol of straw. And then at one stage, he took off his doctor's hat, and he put it down, and he told his students, if you can reconcile Paul and James, I'll give you this doctor's hat. And a lot later, he took his doctor's hat, and he put it on his own head. Well, what was he saying? He'd reconciled it. Because it depends on how you look at it. If you believe that James is the antithesis of Paul, well, then you have a divided doctrine. You have a divided Bible. So he thought it through. And if the biblical truth is that we are saved by grace through faith alone, then that is a pillar. If faith without works is dead, then that is a pillar. But this pillar cannot negate that pillar. It can only support the building. Both of them must be right. So in what sense can the second one be right? It can only be right in the sense that if I accept salvation by faith, then good works will be a consequence, but not a means to salvation. Boom! The hat goes back on. They keep separating the two. They keep separating them. Wilkin ends his article. This is the one who's writing against it. And he says, The fact that there are diverse, diverse views within the faith alone camp should in no way dissuade people from embracing it. While it is true that the Catholic position has less variance within it, that is not such a good thing. The reason for the agreement is that people within the Church of Rome accept tradition as being on a par with Scripture. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, Hebrews 11 verse 6. We are to search the Scriptures, not tradition and Scripture, to see if something is true. Each of us should be so committed to Scripture that even if we were the only person on earth who believed it, taught justification by faith alone, we would stand firm in that belief. It should not matter to us what percentage of people in Christendom hold the faith alone view. The only thing that matters is what God says. He's got a point. Just because the Christian world today is so confused on this issue, on faith and works, doesn't mean that we should stop speaking about it or just be conciliatory. And who other than Seventh-day Adventists who understand the significance of the law 
and the significance of grace would be able to give the third angel's message in its fullness. In 2008, in an interview with journalist Emil Hackenus, this is another source, the Jesuit professor Edward Kimmen, the then General Secretary of the Netherlands Bishop Conference, proclaimed that there remains hardly any reason to remain Protestant. And he saw Protestantism as an action group that forgot to dissolve itself. And a group that had not recognized the significance of a global, visible leadership personality such as the Pope. Moreover, he stated that he doubted that the Reformation would still exist after 2017. This is getting to be a very interesting date. The year when Protestantism commemorates its 500th year of existence. And Protestantism, he said, should return to the Mother Church. Okay, so Roman Catholicism thinks, just like Bishop Palmer thought, that Protestantism is over. Religious news services reports that the two sides, Protestantism and Catholicism, have decided to bury the hatchet for the upcoming commemoration of the commencement of the Protestant movement. The Vatican and the Lutheran World Federation released a joint document from conflict to communion in Geneva on Monday, June 17, 2013, that said, quote, There is little purpose in dredging up century-old conflicts. In the document, the two churches recognized that in the age of ecumenism and globalization, the celebration requires a new approach, focusing on the reciprocal admission of guilt and on highlighting the progress made by Lutheran-Catholic dialogue in the past 50 years. The fact that the struggle for this truth in the 16th century led to the loss of unity in Western Christendom belongs to the dark pages of church history. Excuse me. And in 2017, we must confess openly that we have been guilty before Christ of damaging the unity of the church. The document also affirms that the two sides, Lutherans and Catholics, have come to acknowledge that more unites than divides them. We're heading to a very interesting time in history. Hebrews 12, verse 16. Lest there be any fornicators or profound person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Is Protestantism about to sell its birthright? And will they seek it with tears and not find it thereafter? I think we'll take a short break and then continue with where we're heading in the near future. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, 
You can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.